Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to season two, episode five, part one of the Mind Hunter Companion. Um, as always, my co-host is Peter, and I am Doug. Welcome, Doug. Welcome. We're going to split this episode into two podcast episodes because it's a, it's like a double episode. It's uh, it's Chock very full. It's it's, way, it's long and an incredible amount of stuff happens, and I think we just didn't feel like we could do it justice in one podcast episode. So we'll we'll split the episode roughly in the middle. <laughs> Um, it's like 71 minutes, this episode. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot for episodic television. It's basically a short movie. We won't podcast for 71 minutes, though, total. <laughs> um, okay, so should we get down to it? Yes, let's get down okay. to it, part one. So we begin uh, once again with Dennis Rader, who is digging in his yard. And at first, you don't know, is he... You know, is he getting ready to bury a body? What's he doing? And he's obviously behind his house, which we've seen before. And then we see that he is burying a box with a translucent lid that allows us to see that it contains his fetish gear, which is interesting. By the way, his house, the, the whole scene, like it's not exactly a, you know, better homes and gardens uh, cover. It's pretty grim. Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to be sort of like lower middle class, blue collar, dilapidated. Yeah, it, it looks, it's like, I mean, I don't know, it might turn anybody into a serial killer having to live in that, those digs. It's <laughs> awesome. Okay, so then after the credits, uh, we cut to Bill and Nancy, uh, who, by the way, Bill and Nancy are sort of becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger part of our story. You know, Holden is, uh, I wouldn't say he's being marginalized, but, you know, Nancy has 10 times more screen time in season two than she had in season one. The only bad thing is, like, at this point, Nancy basically is just constantly freaking out. And crying. Yeah, Nancy is just, she's just like one, one big freak out that Bill has to deal with. Yeah, she was hired for her ability to cry on command. Um, So we open with Bill and Nancy uh, sitting at their table in absolute shock over the uh, the revelation that their son uh, was involved uh, in the uh, the killing of this little boy at the rental property, and and Nancy believes that the bedwetting was his way of trying to tell them, right? Him saying, "I'm sorry." Right. So she sort of figures out that that was him not so much talking about the bedwetting, but more apologizing for doing something bad. Right. That he couldn't really express. Right. And perhaps he thought that putting him on the cross would bring him back or something. Well, that's sort of Nancy's Nancy's hypothesis. She's obviously rationalizing. She's turning like this horrendous thing into this. Like, oh, he had a spiritual connection. <laughs> well, I like, well, I don't think that she's saying that. I think she's thinking that maybe he misinterpreted something he heard in church and thought that putting him on the cross would make the boy breathe again. And then well, they have the no, that's what uh, Nancy says. No, that's what I know, Nancy but says. I know, but it's her. Her spin is like it's sort of patently over optimistic in a way because it, it well, basically. It, it, Tributes to him some kind of what would be perceived as the best possible motive exactly. and, 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 and religiosity. Right. You took the word out of my mouth. It paints their son in the best possible light. 
Right. I mean, this kid is, you know, he's a, he's a fear. He's a God fearing Jesus loving kid. He wants to resurrect the poor boy who is, you know, right. And he's been listening in church. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's a little, you know, I mean, it's not like Bill says, Hey, that's a great hypothesis. Let's, uh, let's proceed from there. <laughs> right. But, but Bill, you know, Bill is pretty quiet in this scene. You know, he doesn't say much, you know, his main contribution is, you know, Nancy realizes that may, they may in fact lose the boy to social services and, and, and Bill says he won't let that happen. Right. That's yeah. his real, that's his real contribution to the scene. Like he's trying to sort of be the rock for her. Well, you know, as as Nancy's freaking out and rationalizing, Bill is just straight up strategizing and trying to surf through the system. Right. And chain smoking. Well, but he does that all the time anyway. <laughs> so in the midst of this phone call, he gets a sorry, in the midst of this meeting, he gets a phone call uh, from Gunn basically telling him to come in uh, right away. Right. And uh, boss. He, he just. He just runs away and leaves Nancy uh, sitting at Sobbing. the kitchen table. Right. <laughs> and he, it's almost kind of implied that he's maybe glad to get out of there, you know, for five minutes. Yeah. You know, okay, got to go in. Try not to let the kid murder anyone else. I'll be back in a <laughs> couple hours. hours. So, and he really, you know, he goes from the frying pan of his house to the fire at work and he basically gets called on the carpet by gun, who is basically pissed that Atlanta ejected the FBI from the at kid investigation. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, they had said to both Wendy and bill, like, you gotta watch Holden. You gotta make sure that he doesn't go, you know, off the reservation. And this is exactly what has come to pass. I mean, Holden was a little, maybe too Holden, you know, but, could you really avoid Atlanta politics in this situation? I don't know if you could have avoided it. I don't know if, if anybody could have. No, but I, I guess I guess Holden being so forth right about his theory didn't help anybody. And Holden Holden also didn't have the savvy to understand the political situation. And like like the commissioner is obviously not on their side. And the way he interacts with the commissioner, he's really misreading the situation in Atlanta. Like, there's no yes. doubt that the guy is not on Holden's side from the second he walks in the room. Well, he doesn't even read that there is a political situation, never mind even trying to take sides. He's so enthused. He's like the enthused, dorky teenager who's coming in talking about his video game while, you know, this, the, the, somebody is clearly working on some other interest and has zero interest, and he just assumes that they're super into it. What he's saying, right? But you he know, misses but, the whole. He misses everything about it. They right, he misses the environment, right? He's yeah. got his. He's got his blinders on, as they to use a, net, a mind hunter term. But you know, Gunn is correct. Like Gunn says, we want them to understand why they need us, yeah. and he's right. You know, not why they should be wary of us. He says to Bill, like he's Gunn has totally nailed this, and then he finishes by kind of threatening Bill. He says, "This cannot happen." again bill like and it's unclear like is he saying i'll fire holden i'll fire you i'll fire both of you like it's it's unclear do you know what i mean yep like it's a it's like the more nebulous the threat the scarier it is so 
Uh, and then uh, Bill heads down to the basement um, and uh, basically kind of rips into Holden. Again, you could imagine that some of this is his frustration over his home situation, his frustration over, you know, getting his ass chewed by, uh, by gun. And then he basically says, you know, you blew it for us. And, you know, now we're, we're in the shitter because of you. You know, and Holden yeah. tries to defend himself by saying, oh, I'll talk to Ted, meaning gun. And Bill says, you're not talking to anyone. Right. Right. And he really kind of rips in him and says, you know, you can't say all this unsupported stuff. And, you know, and Holden tries to defend himself sort of on, on, I guess, sort of behavioral science type grounds. And then Bill basically says, you didn't read the political situation correctly at all. You hadn't been to any of the crime scenes. Like you looked like you were mouthing off. And he basically says, shut up until we've done some groundwork and storms out. It's a really, really good scene. Yeah. And it's great when he walks out of the office, everyone heard it. Like the rest of the unit heard everything and they were just staring at the door listening. Right. And, and, but, you know, Wendy and Bill already know the score. So, you know, the other people are at a different level in the, in the unit. They're just kind of busy bees, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's some unnamed people in the background now, like making coffee and doing Xeroxing. So you kind of get the sense that they might be getting more of a staff now. Yeah, they're so expanding. Bill, Bill storms out of the hall and Wendy follows him out in the hall and she tells him about the about their Henley trip. Um, and he apologizes to her. He says, I'm sorry you had to hear that. And she kind of picks up that there's something else going on and says, You look terrible. Yeah, what's up? She says. Right. Um uh, you know, and they, they talk about how they're supposed to be Holden's blinders and you know maybe they can't be like i think i can remember one of them says it's a full-time job to be holden's blinders right uh and then bill, bill, lets bill on. Say, yeah and bill says that, that that there's something going on with his family but he doesn't elaborate yet so but it is interesting that uh, they talk about but she does say that they uh Oh, that's later because I know he tells her something. He tells her at the at the party, but uh, but but he does uh, acknowledge that they went out and talked about Henley, and she says a transcript should be done tomorrow, and he says looking forward to it, and that's a transcript that she's worried about. Yeah, she's very concerned because that's in in the previous episode uh, she had sort of she'd spoken to him about the fact that she was a lesbian actually openly right and it's recorded right it's on going to be on the transcript um we then cut in a big tonal shift in the episode we suddenly see wendy on a date what was what's wendy's partner's name again what's the woman's name the bartender uh i cannot remember I think they only gave her first name. Yeah, I could it's, dig it out of my old notes. But the bartender. Okay, it's K. K, thank you. K. Um, and then, and we find out that like Wendy is not type A. Wendy is like type A plus. Like they are like threatening to be a tiny bit late to the movie, like to the point where they won't have their seat before the trailers start. And Wendy doesn't know if she can go to the movie 
unless they're everything is perfect. And then Kay starts to mock her uh, by purposely slowing down and driving really slow as she tries to parallel park into a parking space in front of the theater, kind of calling Wendy out like you're being ridiculous. Openly. Yeah. And, you know, this is, you know, this is the first time we see Wendy starting to blow it a little bit with this woman, right? Like, you know, Wendy's so rigid, you know, like she cannot relax. I mean, you see, it's like the second time you sort of think like, oh, this isn't going to work out. Cause what, cause uh, Kay even said that when they were at the bowling alley, like, well, this isn't going to work out. <laughs> right. And then, um, Kay just says, well, you know, fuck the whole thing. Let's go uh, drink a bottle of wine, dot, dot, dot. And then she says, fine. And you could tell, like, maybe that's a more appealing thing. Like, maybe Wendy herself recognizes that she's got to calm down. So yeah. then they, they bail on the movie. You know, it's unclear. You know, the movie's playing were um, the tin drum. They probably weren't going to see that. Uh, La Caja Fall. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that, that was the right. movie, right? And <laughs> being there, eh, they might have gone to see being there with uh, oh, uh, Peter, Sellers. Peter Sellers. I saw that in the theater, by the way. Yeah, you're, you're dating. You're, you're, my... yeah, I was going to say you're you're threatening to reveal to the audience your age. Um, Old, you know, I don't remember being there as much as I remember the Mad Magazine parody of being. <laughs> I remember all the jokes from the mad parody. Uh, and then we cut uh, to uh, Kay's neighborhood, which, which, by the way, Kay's neighborhood makes uh, Dennis Rader's neighborhood look really nice. It's like the urban version of Dennis Rader's neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, like, like um, I don't know, like modern urban shithole, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we don't see it, but we hear... Uh, Kay and Wendy having sex. Ficky, ficky going on. Uh, and then uh, the scene goes from them being sort of like post-coital and intertwined and then uh, suddenly kind of goes sour. You know? Yeah. Like well. Wendy, Wendy can't quite hold it together. Like she, she manages to... Uh, insult Kay at every possible turn. She says, I didn't imagine you living in a place like this, which is a pretty unkind thing to say. I mean, she's just kind of saying like the apartment's sort of empty and crappy. It is definitely a dump though. And right. Wendy's living in like there's no, there's corporate no headboard, housing. Right. You get the impression that it's a, you know, it's a mattress on some cinder blocks, you know, I mean, it looks like, you know, like a rundown dorm room. You know, it's yeah. like, it's really crappy. Um, and then uh, they talk about uh, Kay's son a little bit. Um, uh, but again, like, you know, Kay just basically says, I am who I am and this is just how it is. And Wendy is just nothing but judgmental. Yeah. Um, well, she doesn't, you know, Kay doesn't have an orange um, stripe on her wall. Yeah. In her corporate apartment like Wendy has. Well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, she says like, oh, I'd like to meet your son. And Kay shoots that down. She's like, oh, no, no, no. You're not meeting my son. And then Wendy criticizes her uh, um, for compartmentalizing her life. But nobody compartmentalizes her life more than Wendy, you know? Yeah. 
Um, it's awkward because when he clearly likes her and she's trying to sort are of... Are we sure bounce. her name is Kay, by the way? I thought it was Kay, but... I'm not sure, but whatever. <laughs> anyway, she, you know, Wendy, Wendy is, is sort of going in between being, you know, really sort of really liking Kay and then putting her foot in her mouth every 20 seconds. So, um, it's, it's awkward. It's very awkward. And, 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 you know, you know, they're, you know, they're really an odd couple. I mean, right. They're Oscar and Felix in every sense of the word with Wendy in the Felix role. Um, you know, She's so high strung in, in every possible way. And she's attracted to this woman and she likes being around her. But like, you wonder if they can bridge the gap. Right. Outwardly, they're just like two hot lesbians, but inwardly, <laughs> not so, uh, not so much. Right. Right. And, and again, you know, the question is, do they have more going on in their relationship beyond their physical attraction for each other? Like we don't know yet. Right. And they're yeah, probably even, both wondering the same thing. I'm not even sure how Kay, if Kay's really <laughs> that her interested. Name. Whatever. Yeah. I don't know if she's really that interested. You know? Yeah. We don't know. We, uh, we don't know. I mean, she's uh, being and, much more restrained. And you also don't know how many other people, by the way, you're correct. It is Kay. Um, uh, but we don't know how many other partners. Kay has, whereas you know that Wendy has no other partners. Yeah. Right? For Wendy, this is, you know, all her eggs are in one basket, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I thought that was a really good scene. Like, you know, they they made that scene very, very complicated, and it's 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 tempting for them to just show Wendy in a good light, but it's interesting that they show Wendy kind of screwing stuff up. You know? Oh yeah, you know that's what she said. She says she says something like, you know, I I interview the, uh, you know, I interview people who are the byproducts of promiscuous mothers all the time. <laughs> that's my job, or something like that. And then she's right, like, oh, like well, but I don't mean to suggest you're a promiscuous mother, right? When she just did that, yeah, it's really rough. Yeah, it's a, it's a good scene, you know. And again, um, I like the way in the show that they don't, you know, they show all the main characters to be sort of like multifaceted and complex in their lives. Like, you know, I don't know if they do it, but I would actually say that I would like to see Agent Smith at home. Like, you know, he's he's the of everybody we see in the show. He's the one drawn in the least multidimensional way. Like, it would be neat to see him at home or outside of work. Like that's that's some untapped fertile soil for this show that we haven't seen yet because why is he the way he is and why does he think the way he is? Like he's clearly not dumb. You know, he just he comes at it from a very different viewpoint than the rest of the BSU. Well, he's probably wearing a garter belt and jerking off in the bathroom too, like Dennis Rader. Right. Um okay. So then we cut back to, to Quantico. I'd like to see um, his wife catch him doing that. That'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's always the quiet ones. Um, so we cut back to uh, to Quantico, where again Wendy's makeup is off the hook, and she appears to have a serum bilirubin of about ten. Um, and uh, it's funny they begin... how I don't even notice that ever. It's really yeah, weird. I guess it's the focus of our lives or something. Um, but uh, the first line of the scene is. Uh, Bill says, nice save the Dyke mentor story. 
right? So they just <laughs> jump right in. That's the transition, right, from Wendy in bed with this woman, right, to addressing Wendy's sexuality at work, right? We just saw her out of work. Now we see her back at work. And Wendy just kind of, like, Yeah, she gets away with it. Like, the guys just, they just assume, like, she was just BSing her way along. Well, you know, she kind of looks at the floor for a second, but there's a there's a very telling shot that's very brief of Agent Smith. Um, and he, and like, you know, Bill is like, oh, that's really great the way you thought of that. And then Agent Smith kind of looks at her and then he looks at the floor. And, you know, I think Agent Smith has figured it out, right? He might have. I mean, initially, he basically was thinking she just faked it. Yeah, now he's not so, so sure. Knows, yeah. right? You could tell, like, he pondered that one. Um. He's probably going to write a letter and turn her into the ethics board. <laughs> He's probably already written it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, on the surface, at least, uh, Wendy is able to sort of like stick to the story and everybody on the surface at least appears to believe that the story that she told to Henley uh, is fake. Uh, and, and, and what's interesting is that they acknowledge that Henley was more defensive about being called gay than he was about being called a sadist for example you know what i mean right um and then there's a lot of debate back and forth about how culpable he is like if he didn't participate in the murder it's just the procurement right like what is his level of of guilt although they all agree that he is certainly guilty but they're saying you know he was a minor can he be held responsible the same way when he's under the sway of an adult right yeah it's an interesting debate like he was trying to please quarrel right um so it's interesting it's it's a good debate and again it shows how much fodder they can make of the the henley scene um you know, and Bill actually, I thought this was really a good piece of writing here. Bill kind of defends Henley. Like, if you look at the tone of Bill's arguments, like of everything that he says in this whole scene, he kind of defends Henley, like to the point where Wendy is shocked by this. And she says, Bill, he assisted in killing 20 boys. But, you know, when Bill is defending Henley, he's really talking about his son. Right. Yeah. He's talking about like, well, how responsible is a young person if he gets mixed up in the in the misdoings of older individuals around him like it's a really good scene because it starts to they're having two parallel conversations and they don't know it like bill's talking about one thing and none of them realize it. they think bill is talking about henley and he's not yeah it was a little heavy i um, liked it though like it was a good scene like everything on like under the surface you know what i mean yeah um i don't know i thought that was great um and then uh, Smith said that Henley had a need for acceptance, which makes Bill wonder, right, about his son, which I thought was also like, you could see Bill has to reflect on that a little bit. Uh, and then Wendy says that they should maybe consider changing their tactics. Uh, and then uh, she acknowledges for the first time that improvisation works right which is what holden has been saying to her all along she's always saying let's stick to the script stick to the script and she she realizes that like look i i you know i said something that i hadn't planned to say and and it made the whole interview so it's an interesting scene like score one for holden and she says she finally says we can't strictly follow 
the instrument, which for Wendy is an enormous leap. Yeah, she's she's loosening up at work, if not on dates. But right, you know, exactly. it's funny because Holden now it's almost like Holden of last season would have like jumped up and down at this point, almost, you know, like it would have been like a big deal that she turned around like that. Right. But Holden now is just, he's sort of quiet. He's just sort of, he's shrunken almost like he's, he's Mm. strange now. You know, and maybe they replaced uh, just thematically in the show. Maybe they replaced the Debbie character with Kay. Right, like they're yeah. they're shifting the focus to explore the other characters, so so Wendy gets a romantic partner, you know, so they can illustrate her outside of work. It's interesting because we now we've seen all three principles outside of work, right? Uh, and then Gun comes in, Gun startles them. Um, he does that constantly. <laughs> well, <he's laughs> like the he boss. just shows. I know, but like the right? old, uh, the, what's her what's their name? The old boss like never showed up. Down yeah. there, unless it was like a scheduled Shepherd. meeting. Shepherd, yeah. Right. And then he says, "Quite." They're talking. He recognizes they're talking about Henley. And he goes, "Quite a maneuver, Doctor Carr." I thought I was reading Holden. <laughs> sort of implying it's a little hard to believe that none of these guys kind of. I mean, come on, come on. I, I mean, guess back at the time, I don't know. Who knows? Know. Smith. Uh, Smith is on it, I think. So, uh, and speaking of Smith, uh, Smith gets asked to leave. Right? <laughs> Can goes, you blame him? He goes, well, Greg, would you give us a minute, please? But again, Greg. like this gets back to what I said in the prior show. Like, why is he still there? Like, if, why hasn't he applied to leave? Like, they clearly don't like him. He hasn't performed well in the field. The the director's not favorable towards him. Like, he should leave. Like, I don't he, understand why he stays. He doesn't seem like the kind of dude who leaves when he's not wanted. He I just no. He seems like the kind of dude who just will stay there taking abuse. Padre. Um, And then he tells him that the assistant director of the FBI, Wyman, is coming down and uh, Gunn is having a gathering at his home and they're all invited. Right, and Uh, they can bring a significant other. Right, right. Um, But they, they specifically want them to be talking at the party about the BSU to help promote it. Right, they're going to be FBI bigwigs there. So they basically, he wants them there to like yuck it up. And you can tell, like, uh, none of them really want to (laughs) go. Like, you know, it's not a party. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be work. And then as he walks out of the meeting, uh, he drops a, a huge bomb on them. And he says, I got you, Manson. Like, Right, the, the 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 white whale, like the the one they've been after. Like they're gonna yep. get to interview Charlie Manson in three weeks. Mm-hmm. And he just sort of like leaves that. He doesn't even bother to shut the door behind him. He just sort of like drops that on the on the, the group and then lets them ponder it. To, and all Bill can say is holy shit. <laughs> uh and then Wendy Wendy argues to uh you know, that they need to plan this. And then Wendy says, no, 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 you can't treat Manson like the rest of them because he never killed anybody. Right? So, I mean, he was the leader of a team of killers. So, you know, Wendy is wondering if the script doesn't work at him. 
work for him, right? He's the leader of the family and they have to approach him that way. Um, I read, by the way, I think I might've mentioned this in another episode. I read the, the biography of uh, Charlie Manson. Uh, I'm actually who wrote it. It was fantastic. Uh, to the listeners, if, if obviously if you're interested in this uh, sort of thing, I'm trying to remember the name of the, uh, the, the book and the author, but it was just, it was just phenomenal. Like I literally could not put it down. Like it was, I didn't, I honestly really didn't know uh, that much about Manson and the whole Manson family. I mean, I knew about the Tate and LaBianca killings, but just from what I'd seen in the movies and on TV. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, it was such an amazing book. I mean, I read it. I think I, yeah, it's, it's Manson life and times of Charles Manson by Jeff Gwynn. Um, and I could not put this thing down and it's not a small book. It's uh, here. I'm just on the Amazon site right now. And it's 512 pages and I read it in a weekend. Like I literally, like it just sucked all the oxygen out of the room for me. And like, it was so well done. Anybody who's interested, I can't recommend it enough. Um, but back to, uh, back to Mindhunter. Uh, we then see uh, Bill and Nancy uh, meeting with some, some form of law enforcement or a judge or an attorney. It's unclear exactly who it is. And they say that because Brian did not directly uh, engage in the activities that led to the death, um, you know, they're not going to be going after him directly, but he definitely played a role. And Wendy is very, very defensive about it uh, to the point where, you know, the, the I think it's the DA basically says, look, a kid died. Like, she starts freaking out again, basically. Yeah. Um, well, she you starts can, you defending know, him and she's given the, the, you know, the crucifixion line again and she just... Right. Yeah, it's not good. So there's so the, and they say that, you know, look, he didn't he didn't actively participate, but he had opportunity to go for help. He didn't do anything, or right? he didn't talk about it after the fact. Like there was a lot of stuff that he could have done, right? That, you know, he didn't do. And they say, look, he was either evading detection or he doesn't understand right from wrong. Right. So they don't take Brian away from them, but they are gonna put the entire tench household under the microscope and he's under actually like department of health and human services control now, but they let him stay at home with Bill and Nancy, but they are going to, you know, really, really, really have to comply with an enormous amount of scrutiny. Right. I think it's the state. I don't think it's the feds, but yeah, they're, they're basically they're Well, they say HHS. They specifically say that. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, they definitely say uh, HHS, but uh, maybe there's a state branch. I don't know. Um, but, you know, it's it's not a win for them, for the Tenches, but it's it's at least as close to a win as they could get. You right. know what I mean? Like, they're not out of the woods, but they get to keep the kid at the house and at least sort of see where the next steps go. And Nancy's losing her shit over this and then, you know, Bill has to like emphasize to her, we keep him at home. Like we just want in there. Right. They could have taken him away and like stuck him in an institution. Right. Exactly. Or worse. Um, 
So the scene ends with basically Bill and Nancy not being on the same page. You know, like they, Nancy's really, really offended and she doesn't like the idea of these people coming into her house. And, you know, Bill, who in the past was defensive about this stuff, says maybe it's not a bad idea for Brian to talk to someone. Right. It's an interesting scene played interestingly. You know, the woman who plays Nancy does do a good job. I mean, her part is kind of limited and she's always sort of got to be sort of like frosty and, you know, hard bit. But, you know, she does a really good job with it. And she's got a killer perm. <laughs> it is. Um, and then we we cut back to Quantico uh, and they're listening to Charlie Manson's music. Uh, a lot of people don't know that he tried to make it as a singer and a performer and had some albums. Um, and uh, they're all listening to Manson's music just to kind of get into uh, his head. Um, and then they, they have a discussion uh, sort of about, you know, what Helter Skelter was, right? The whole idea that Manson and the family were trying to precipitate a race war, right? By doing the murders and trying to imply that perhaps the killings were done by blacks. Um, so, you know, this is all they're sort of, they're doing their research as they gear up to go interview sort of the, you know, as I said earlier, the white whale. Um, and they're, you know, they agree that they can't ask Manson about killing because he didn't do it, right? So they're going to ask him about basically how did he convince a bunch of teenagers who are previously upstanding to murder seven people? And there's a great scene where Holden goes through the seven key members of the family and he shows them all their photos one at a time and they look for all the world like, you know, like the Brady Bunch, like these all-American-looking kids, you know, who uh, fell under Manson's influence and committed some really, really brutal crimes. Right. It killed multiple people. Sharon Tate, being one of them, was an actress who was fairly well known at the time. She was and, pregnant, right, very pregnant. She was eight months pregnant, right? Yeah. She was. Uh, she was carrying Roman Polanski's kid. I don't know if she was married to Polanski or not. I don't know. They were a couple. I think she was living in his house. Or yeah, no, yeah, no. They were definitely living together. Um, um, but, you know, uh, but Manson himself did not uh, do any of the killings. So it's interesting. And then they decide to focus a little bit on Tex Watson. Uh, so they think that Tex might be able to give them uh, some information about how the transformation, you know, from these these kids took less than two years, right, before they started, you know, murdering people. Um, so, I don't know. What did you think of that scene? I thought it was, it, I thought it was kind of like a way for them to introduce or like it was almost like a primer uh, on Manson for the audience who maybe didn't know about, you know, didn't know about Helter Skelter or the Manson crimes. Because I imagine a lot of young people don't know anything about Manson. It's, it's 50 years ago. I mean, I think they have to, right, they had to, everybody's heard of Manson, but 50 years have passed. I don't think, maybe, I don't think people realize that Manson didn't kill anybody. So they had to kind of give you a little bit of background. Right. Um, and and they, it was pretty effective. Yeah, I liked it. And then we cut to uh, the social worker uh, going through 
uh, the Tench household in a very unpleasant manner with Bill and Wendy sort of hovering around her as she like is literally like looking underneath mattresses and in drawers and you know she's like she, poking through their like their like toiletry kits with a with a clipboard basically right. and like it's, it's it's very invasive and Bill is kind of grinding his teeth watching and then of course Nancy's freaking out. Right. And the implication is this woman has absolute authority to be as invasive as she wants and they don't have anything. Well, right? it's, it's, and it's, it's that like she, part of the deal is for her to be invasive. It's not even just that she particularly wants to, it's like, this is, this is the ride that they're on. Right. This, this social worker, like picking through to try to figure out what's the kid like, what's the family life like, what is the next step the state's going to take to ensure that he's not a danger? And Wendy tries in her sort of awkward way to be nice and the woman will have no part of it, which sort of gets at a comment Bill made to her at the courthouse where he said, she's not our friend. Yeah. Right. So Bill, like Bill, Bill sizes the situation up much, much better. And she says like, look, you got to go to therapy and you guys got to go and I'm going to come by whenever I want. Yeah. You know, and he says it again at the end of the scene. He says, Bill says to Nancy, she's not our friend. Um, and then uh, we jump abruptly to Vacaville. This is our third or fourth trip to Vacaville on the show, where uh, we discover that uh, Charlie guess Manson who, and guess, Ed Kemper. Yeah, guess who's <laughs> living in the same house? Yeah, same neighborhood. <laughs> um, uh, so this is it. Like this is our big intro, you know, to uh, to go and finally see Manson. And Holden actually brings a, a copy of uh, Bugliosi's uh, book about the case, Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter, right? Um, and Holden is conspicuously wearing sunglasses in the scene, which becomes important later in the episode. And then they find out that they can't see Manson right away because uh, there's a delay. Manson, yeah, Manson doesn't feel like coming out of his cell. Right, so they got to uh, cool their jets a little bit, and then they realize that they might as well use the time a little bit and talk to none other than our friend, Ed Kemper. Ed Kemper, the, the rock star of season one. And Bill doesn't want to talk thing. to him. Bill says, no, no, not Kemper. We came Especially, to see Manson. Well, even on top of that, because he knows what happened last time, but it hasn't been that long since... You know, right, Holden, Holden's breakdown. Holden complete right. Holden had a mental breakdown, and then Bill had to go get him and keep it quiet. And it right. was basically at it was right there at Vacaville. And Holden says, "You know, look, we got to ask him about returning to the scene of the crime for BTK." And he reassures Bill that you know he thinks he'll be okay. Uh, and then. Uh, they decide to go ahead and they meet with Ed Kemper, who's uh, sitting in church, of all things. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, we've touched on some of these scenes before, but Kemper calls them friends. You know, he sees yeah. Holden and Bill there, and he's, he's clearly happy. You know, he, what a surprise, he says. Gentlemen, you know, he's, this is the highlight of his month, you know, a visit from these guys again. Well, and you know, he is the most, he's the person who is the most responsible for actually the, the nascent formation of the behavioral science unit. I mean, it's him. He gave them a lot of the, 
underlying concepts and really the spark to get things rolling um, by telling them about his own take, some, some of the fundamental things that were involved in his killing in his head and also the fact that it would apply to other people and that there are others out there and he really shaped the formation. So he, he really is kind of like their star contributor. And he's the most honest with them. You know, he has the least yeah. to hide. He's the most honest with them. And he's smart and articulate, very smart. And he likes what they're doing. Like he likes the idea of being part of their project, you know, by the way, at this yeah. point, we've barely covered 29 minutes of this show. Like right. this is, this is a dense episode. Yeah. They really um, packed, packed a lot in there. Uh, you know, Kepler's funny because they they talk a little bit about Manson. He says everybody knows when Charlie takes a shit, and if you haven't heard, he'll tell you all about it, right? right? So he sort of acknowledges that Manson has an oversized presence in the prison, despite his extremely small physical stature. Yeah. Um. Uh. So that's that's I think interesting, and you know, like like not only is Kemper insightful about himself, he's insightful about Manson. Yeah, Kemper is no. extremely insightful. Like he, he rarely says anything that's that's wrong or not useful. And you know, Both. and, and Kemper seizes on the fact that you know he's not who you're used to talking to. Like he doesn't know what it's like. Like he hasn't killed anybody. Yeah, you know, like like Kemper immediately recognizes what Wendy did. Is you can't you can't treat him like that. And he says talk to Tex. He says, you know, Manson's going to only give you so much, but Tex Watson is really the one that you need to talk to. Uh, and then they get down to business. Uh, Holden starts the recorder and um, they talk to Ed a little bit. And what they, they say that they want to talk to Ed is about revisiting the sites of his victims. You know, I got to say, like, I almost wonder why don't they go talk to Kemper more often about cases? I mean, every time they go, the guy's useful. It also makes you wonder, like for Ed, why couldn't they just call him on the phone? Like, I'm sure prisoners are allowed to receive phone calls. Like, yeah, they could call him and they could like mail him like some case stuff. Yeah. And then sort say of like, like, what's like, your opinion? Right, like Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, because, because he probably would be the most useful person to look at all their stuff. Right. Um, but they talk to him about visiting the sites of the crimes, and he talks about how you get to relive the experience, you know, and, and, and feel how you dominated and possessed another person. Right, um, and how it's sexually gratifying. And, and he, then... He oh, really boils it down for them. You and know, like, he, he also figures out very quickly that their questions are too pointed. And he says, you're not catching somebody, aren't you? Right. Like he, you know, he, 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 he reads them like a book. Uh, yep. And then they, they say to him that uh, they can't they talk about it for somebody. Um, but, you know, maybe you could, you could, help us and then he talks about without really knowing anything about btk he basically says look this guy has a, a vigorous uh fantasy life and you know he spends uh, a lot of time thinking about it right definitely going back to the scene of the crime most likely and then he makes the most insightful uh comment really of the show where he says correctly 
you know, you guys are of a huge bias to your study because you only know from people, <laughs> people who got, got caught, caught. You know, yeah. like like you don't know, you know, what successful serial killers are thinking or how they're able to stay ahead of you. So, like, that's a By super way, interesting point. Foreshadowing the fact that BTK does not get caught for like 20 more years. Yeah, yeah, forever, forever and ever and ever. Um but, uh, you know, and they say, well, could you help us with the case? And Ed says, well, I mean, I, I have to have access to the files, you know. And then Bill says, well, we can't give you that. And he says, I understand. But he actually offers to help out. Yeah, that, finding a way to take him up on that would have been, you know, it's, they, they almost, they're, they're too uptight about Kemper in a way. I understand they have to be defensive with him because and he's also manipulative. Look he did, and look what he did to Holden. Oh, look, the guy is, uh, he's, he's clearly has no concern for others. Right. And, um, but so he's dangerous, but on the other hand, he truly is interested in this. And the only thing he has to look forward to are things that he's interested in. So he will, you know, he'll walk a mile to help as long as he's interested in the topic. Mm hmm. And right. it's like, you wonder when you're watching this, like, I understand how you're saying that, but you got to realize how your chance of catching somebody goes up probably, you know, significantly by having Kemper somehow really look at the details. Yep. Yep. And, you know, he says, you know, he says uh, regarding uh, BTK, you know, just from what little information he says, this person you're after has an overwhelming fantasy life fantasies of what he's done what he wants to do yeah. um you know how he's going to improve like he's describing what we've seen right yeah, of, the, uh, sitting in the library drawing right of raider without knowing anything about him and he says that you know these dreams will consume him to the point that the real world can't compare and then they say so how do we catch him and 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 kemper says you can't not if he's any good to live like any other person, have relationships, yeah. hold down a job. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when they've, they know enough when they're starting to, in their nascent efforts at profiling at this point, to say things like, this person will have a rich fantasy life, they'll think about their crimes. But they don't achieve the level of, of detail, the level of, of comprehension and the level of subtlety and appreciation that Kemper does even in a few sentences in like two minutes with them. He right. spent, he's because he's a much greater expert than they are. And he spent much more time pondering things than they have. And right from, from the, from multiple, you know, angles from the pre, right. For the pre killing perspective, the killing phase. And now he's got the rest of his life to look back on it. Right. And he right. says, you know, it seems to me, Holden, that everything you know about serial killers has been gleaned from the ones who've been caught. Again, we talked about that earlier. And then right yeah. then, uh, there's an alarm and they announce that Manson will see them now. Right. Um, Ironically, then, they should just cancel Manson and just spend all their time <laughs> right, exactly. with Kemper. Right. Um, and then, you know, as as they leave, you know, they, they shake hands and it's all chummy you know and and right. uh, and they're reserved but he right. is not and he says he's a talker 
he's a talker. Yeah. Uh, he's talking and about he tells him, Right. And he says also like, oh, and one more thing, you know, he's really small. Right. Like be prepared. He's like tiny. Yeah. Like, and he stresses it. And this is, you know, and Kemper's like six, nine or something in real, right. you know. Right. And he admonishes them not to stare. Right. Cause basically he's basically saying this guy's a midget. Like, you know, you're not going to expect it. So don't, don't stare and be, don't be a goofball. So um, we should probably stop here. This is, they're about to see Manson. This is a great stopping point because really the Manson visit really bifurcates the whole episode. Yeah. Um, but I mean, so we'll I mean, we are at this point, we are less than halfway through the episode. I mean, it's crazy how much they do in this thing. I know they could have split this into two for sure. They could have. Yeah. They, especially with all the stuff going on at the Tench household. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that this show just keeps getting better and better and more complex and more layered. And we learn more about these characters and their outside lives. You know, again, I still wish we were seeing a little more of Holden's outside life. Like we know Holden recently was, you know, hospitalized for a panic attack and we see him had one at Shepard's retirement party, but we haven't seen much else since. No, he just goes back alone to his apartment. That's the only thing we ever see. Right. But it will be interesting to see more of, uh, what's happening with Holden and his homeless. And, you know, it would be a really great scene. They could do it in two minutes, but the viewers would like it. It's just show where Debbie is, right? Is she alone? Is she with somebody else? Does she think about Holden? She's like, with that dude from class. Right. Uh, Patrick, I think. But yeah. it would be interesting if they show, you know how they could do it really well is if they showed like Debbie sitting at her kitchen table, smoking a cigarette, and she saw an article about a killing that doesn't mention Holden, but it's just, you know, she knows she's wondering like, is Holden involved with this? Right. You know, that would be a neat way that they could get her back in. But, um, so, uh, we should stop there before we get, uh, any further and end our, uh, season two, episode five, part one here. I do want to give a shout out. We got a super nice email from Mary Edmark who said that, um, She's just finished watching both seasons of Mindhunter, and she's been obsessed with the show uh, ever since. Uh, and she loved our podcast and uh, can't wait to listen to it. Uh, so thank you, Mary, for your nice uh, email. Um, you can either email us at popcorndrinkcombo at gmail.com or more recently, uh, mindhunter.companion at gmail.com. Um, so we'll be back next time for uh, season two, episode five, part two. Part two. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Peter. See you.